Good morning, saints. It is good, as Emily prayed, to be in the house of the Lord with with the people of God worshiping Him. So this morning I have a question as we begin. Why? Why did Jesus come? Why did He come? We spent a while this past year talking about why Jesus died. But why did Jesus come? Why do we celebrate the advent of Christ? The world is in desperate straits. The effects of the curse permeate life. As we know it, sin reigns in the hearts of people. All is not well. To be sure, we enjoy blessings. But even those very blessings have embedded in them and in our life experience sadness and heartache and broken relationships and grief and racism, and sexual brokenness, and sad goodbyes, anxiety, and sickness, and wars, just to name a few. We were created with eternity in our hearts, but we are not guaranteed tomorrow. Isaiah says the world lies in thick spiritual darkness. Dead in our sins and walking after the course of this world, following the prince of darkness. We are not okay with our creator. Indeed, we cannot stand under his magnificent holiness. As scripture says, Satan is the God, lowercase g, the God of this world. He holds sway in the hearts and in the philosophies of men. But ah, Isaiah also says that those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. What is this resplendent light? Who is this one bringing Hope. It is Emmanuel, God with us. Why did Jesus come? Why did the Son of God take on human flesh and walk humbly among us? He who showed us what love is, who graced us with the most sublime teaching ever to fall from a person's lips. Why did he come? Why is God with us? Why did God himself come? Could he not have sent someone else in his stead? I mean, he's had lots and lots of prophets and such over the centuries. Saints, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. 
The stakes were too high. He could not send a representative. This was a job that he and he alone could get done. He's the only one who could do this. He who, unlike us, knew no sin. He would become sin for us in the form of a bloody mess nailed to a cruel Roman cross, gasping for his next breath. The author of life died. The prince of glory cried out in agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus became sin so that sinners could be reconciled to God. It's exactly what we preached last week. That we, sinners, would become children of God. That we who were without hope would now have eternal hope. That we being poor in spirit would be gifted by grace with an eternal inheritance. Jesus came to create for himself a people now truly alive. With the very life of God in them. Now zealous for good works. As Ezekiel put it, our hearts of stone removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. This, my friends, is why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. To redeem our sin-cursed world. Indeed, creation cries out for its redemption. Creation itself. Longing for the children of God to be revealed as well. The life of God in the life of people. This is the miracle and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, we are going to heaven when we die, but we have been made alive together with Christ now. I am just as much the child of God now, here, As I will be in eternity in heaven. Reigning with Jesus now. Romans 5. This is why he came. And this is what John is describing for us this morning in our text. He's warned us about false teachers. Not everyone who names the name of Christ is a true Christian. A follower of Christ. Last week we saw John erupt in praise as he describes what it means to be the children of God. And the eternal hope that lies before us. Now, he will show us what that looks like. The distinguishing marks 
of the child of God. Throughout this series, you've heard me say this phrase, the life of God in the life of people. And that is precisely what John focuses on this morning. It's all throughout his letter, to be sure. But now he kind of, remember, he kind of cyclically goes through things. He kind of says the same things over and over again in different ways. He's coming back and he's going to expand what the life of God looks like in people. Notice as we read our text... The use of stark contrast that John will use. His theme in the passage is this new disposition that we have towards righteousness. Doing righteousness, being righteous, doing good things. Not just because someone's watching, but because they actually come from our heart. Our love of God compels us to love people and to turn away from sin. When we are saved, when the Spirit of God lives in us, when God himself indwells us, that is not, cannot be without consequence, without transformation, without a difference. So let's read our text this morning. There's a little preamble. Pay attention to the phrase you'll see repeated over and over again. Practice sinning or go on sinning. Also ask yourself this question. What is God's seed that John will reference? With that having been said, our text this morning is 1 John chapter 3. And we'll begin in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Because sin is lawlessness. It's acting as if there's no law, no rules. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no Sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
By this is evident or manifest who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, John speaks with great clarity in this passage. You will notice the use of contrast that he employs. You will notice he says the same thing in different ways. So as not to leave any stone unturned. There's a few things that I want to point out. There's an immediate challenge when understanding this particular text. In the original, which is the Greek language... A direct translation would simply be sin. Basically, he who sins doesn't know God. Never seen him, never never known him. And it could come across with an exact translation, if you will, that perhaps the idea is Christians are sinless. That is, we attain perfection. And if you're not perfect, well, you're not a Christian. That's not what he's saying. Which is why our translations are very careful, most of them, to supply the full meaning of the word in the tense that it's in in Greek. Present and continuous. What John is speaking to when he talks about sin is this idea of unbroken, habitual, never-ending, this is basically who you are. And he's calling that out. Remember the context from chapter 2. He was warning us about false teachers. About about people peddling bad ideas, unscriptural ideas. And he says, look, there's one way to kind of tell who's who. Because everyone here, the idea is they've named the name of Christ. Some will eventually leave because, well, they were never really of us, John says. But you see, you can't just say you're a Christian and your life is no different. So he's really calling out these false teachers who are in it for the money, for the notoriety, for the greed, and so forth. But he's teaching us what a Christian is. This beautiful concept called the new birth. Or regeneration. That's what he's after. Is the present continuous. That is no difference in your life. Ongoing unbroken unbroken pattern of sin. But notice he is not talking about a special class of Christians. Who are high performers. Who are abiding. He doesn't have in mind just a special group of people. Within the Christian fold. Look at the end of verse 6. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. He is defining a Christian. He's speaking about the new birth. This is what you expect to see in someone who is a child of God. He is not speaking to perfectionism. He's speaking to there's a difference now in your life 
Because God now lives in you. And notice, he talks about who we are in relation to what we do. That's really important. Look at verse 7. Remember, this is elderly John, likely in his 90s, in exile. What do the people of God need to hear? There's all kinds of people who are peddling false ideas, who are cheapening the gospel, who are making it about themselves and not about Christ. Little children, the tenderness, little children, let no one deceive you. Don't, don't, miss on, don't miss it on this one. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. It flows from who we are. It's the new birth. It's the life of God in the life of people. Not always getting it right. We know that. We need God's grace every single day. But the trajectory of my life, now that I'm born again, is completely different than what it was before. That is so important. And as I said before, this is not just a special group of people within the Christian fold. This is what a child of God looks like. To varying degrees in our life, we get it right and we get it wrong sometimes. We have seasons in our life where we might be following after the Lord harder than when we were before. But generally speaking, the life of God in the life of people is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It is not just about punching a ticket saying I prayed a prayer so that I know when I die I'm going to heaven as if that's uh, fire insurance. The life of God is now inside of us. The new birth is a crucial New Testament teaching. It permeates all of the New Testament. I want to take you to just a few. Examples of this. And you'll recognize these. We're going to stay with John. But we're going to go now to his gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is trying to present Christ. To those of us who are not Jews. Who don't have a background per se in the Old Testament. He makes it very, very clear in what he presents to us. You might recall that there was a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, well, he was a part of the religious leaders who really didn't like Jesus. Because he was coming, saying all kinds of things that they could not tolerate. But Nicodemus was nobody's fool. He's like, look, this man over here speaks with authority. His life backs it up. And he's kind of got miracles to back it up. So I want to know a little bit more about him. The dead of night. Nicodemus. And Jesus talk. Look at what Jesus says. This is John chapter 3. Verse 3. 
Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, literally born from above, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. There is a transformation on the inside. There is when God comes and is inside of you, everything is different. Jesus, from the very beginning, says this, you must be born again. There must be a point in your life, even if you now can't go back and identify that exact time, where you clearly are saying, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the key. We go back a little further. This is John, John's prologue, John explaining who Jesus is and why he came. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, speaking of Christ, who believed in his name, who put their stake on the name and the authority and the work of Jesus Christ. He gave the right, the privilege to become the children of God. Do you see that? It's a beautiful thing. The right and the privilege to become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not everyone is born again. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. But look at verse 18. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Present tense. But whoever does not is condemned already. So this is very special. It's the one who believes in Jesus, that is the one who is born again. So going back to John, 1 John, John is speaking to the new birth, being born again. Because being a Christian is not just, as I said, raising your hand years ago and there's no difference. It is the life of God in you now. Changing, convicting, growing, assuring you to walk in grace. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament. I don't have a, 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 a slide for this. Jeremiah chapter 31. We have been there before. This is a passage of great consequence in the Old Testament. Remember... For hundreds of years, God dealt directly and specifically with the people of Israel. There would be prophets raised up in every generation who would speak to the truth of God. Generally speaking, they would assure God's people of, their, of his love for them. They would call them to repentance because oftentimes they would stray away. They would forget about God. They would ignore him. And so the prophet's roles were often to call them back to repentance. In fact, as many of the prophets were charged by God to serve him, he would say up front, your life is going to be a rocky road. 
Because people who love their sin don't like it when you call them out on said sin. But throughout the Hebrew scriptures, there are these glimpses of one who would come, of things who would be, about how things would be different. God would have a new covenant, a new agreement, a new promise, if you will. Look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. The days are coming. There is one who is coming, who would come with new promises, who would put this into effect. And the end of this passage is stunningly beautiful. Look at the end of verse 34. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. These are, this is a gospel promise. There is coming a time when I will deal finally and forever with the issue of sin. It won't be a priest every single day offering the same sacrifices that actually aren't taking away your sin because he's doing it every single day. But there's come, there's one coming who will take care of sin. But I want you to back up to verse 33. Because this is not just about having sins forgiven. It's about a transformation that is now taking place in our hearts. The second half of verse 33. I will put my law within them. And I will write it. On their hearts. That's not something you often see in the Old Testament. God says I will. Do a work. In the process of total forgiveness. I will do something on the inside of you. Where I will take my law. My truth. My righteousness. And I will inscribe it. I will write it on your very heart. So that it becomes the thing that you run to. The thing that you long for. The thing that you desire to do. That's the new birth. Things are different now. God lives inside of you. What we see in the New Testament is our attempt to live out this reality in the midst of a fallen world when we ourselves are not fully glorified yet. That's the struggle that Paul talks about in Romans 7. The very thing that I hate, I wind up doing. And every last one of us can relate to those besetting sins and those thoughts that are not, not from God that we give into. Ezekiel 36 puts it in this way. I'll take out your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and cause you to walk in my precepts. Let's go to the New Testament and see how Paul talks about this. Titus chapter 2. The gospel is all about grace. The grace of God. 
Listen to what Paul says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. There's the battle. There's the struggle. We all know it. We're surrounded by sin. We have a sinful nature. This is difficult. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So now there's a disposition of waiting for the one that we love because we know he is coming back. Now watch this. Who gave himself, this is Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Redeem means to buy back. To purchase back from lawlessness by the blood of Christ. To purify for himself, watch this, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's the life of God in the life of people. Now, zealous to do what is right. Let's see how Peter talks about this. Again, take your Bibles if you have them and turn or scroll to 1 Peter chapter 1. I just want you to see how different authors address this issue. And now we're also going to talk about God's seed. Because John says... The one who is born of God has God's seed in him and he can't go on sinning like nothing's different anymore. It's impossible. What's the seed? What is he talking about? First Peter chapter one. We're going to start in verse three. Oh, this is beautiful. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're now born again by God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we're not just saved from our sins. As stunning as that is, we are saved, verse 4, to an inheritance. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter says, look, I know that I put my foot in my mouth more times than I can remember. If you read, you know, John's gospel, his account, of course, he puts me in the bad light. I'm kidding. But Peter says, look, I now see this clearly. Peter would eventually die for his faith. Because he understands that the resurrection of Christ was the gateway for us to be born again into a living hope. But I want you to pick it up in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that's the gospel, for a sincere brotherly love, 
Love one another earnestly and from a pure heart, since you have been born again, born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For it is written, all flesh is like grass. This is Isaiah and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The seed of God, God's word, God's truth, the gospel made alive and applied and ministered by the Holy Spirit in our life. John says, who are you kidding? The New Testament knows nothing of this idea that someone can be born again and their life bears no resemblance to their confession ever. That is foreign to scripture. So Peter says, look, you've been born again by the word of God, the truth of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the spirit of God ministering that truth is now alive in you. And you may know this directly underneath me. Nine years ago when we built this building, I had Ross, our project manager, measure out exactly where the stage would be as they were laying down the the concrete foundation, where the stage would be, where the pulpit would be, so that underneath me directly is an open-faced Bible to this page, this very passage, as a reminder that whoever preaches or teaches from this place must base it on the Word of God. It's a non-negotiable. Finally, Ephesians chapter 2. Remember this passage, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's a beautiful passage. You're saved not by your own efforts, but look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation by grace through faith, not of your works. And the end, the end part of that is that we now walk in righteousness. Anxious to do good things. Saints, passages like this are in our Bibles for a reason. The elderly apostle has a simple and a clear message. In your pilgrimage through life and in your walk with God, you will encounter many people with many messages. Some will be flashy and they'll wow you with your rhetoric. Some will even do miraculous stunts and catch your attention and they'll promise you the world. Luxury, riches, health, no problems. But John says, don't don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Those who name the name of Christ, it's simple. Do they love God? Do they love righteousness? 
not perfectly living it out, but they, do they desire to do the right thing? Do they love people? If not, don't follow them. The hallmarks of the new birth, they're relentlessly, relentlessly consistent. A love for righteousness, practicing what is good, making a break from who you used to be, and walking in a new direction. And as he will continue in the weeks to come, loving people. Loving righteousness and loving people. Again, I point you to verse 10 of 1 John chapter 3. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. It's just that simple. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. The truths associated with the new birth ultimately will feed a subject matter that is so important for us, and that is assurance of our salvation. We'll develop that as we go through. Do you doubt? Are you slipping back in your mind to a performance-based relationship in which you, you think God loves you if you do well? You think God accepts you if you perform up to your standards? I want to encourage you to abandon that. God's love is unconditional. It is unconditional. And your righteousness is based on the fact that Christ went to the cross, the only one who truly is righteous. John says, just take a look at your life. Look at what God is doing. Be encouraged and keep on walking. But I have a question for you as we close. You'll see the graphic that we have here. This new birth, this new life, this seed of God. Are you nurturing it? Are you growing it? Are you tending to it? There's always a million different things that can distract you from that which is most important in life. There's sin, obviously, that can sideline you as well. In just a moment, I'm going to flash up one of our, the friends that live in our house. If you don't like lizards, just look away. So not long ago, Kaylee um, established a little zoo in our house. Little lizards. Uh, there's, uh, she has Frankie and Sammy. This is Sammy. Leopard gecko and a bearded dragon. But I just want to say, when we bring a pet into our home, you, know, you take care of that little pet, right? I mean, I just, hats off to Kaylee. She has researched how to take care of these things, how to feed them, how to nourish them, how to make sure they're okay. You've got the, the different lights in the room. When she spends a nice, the night elsewhere, I'm often tasked with, okay, you've got to switch this light on, put this light on. I mean, it's, very, it's all very, very, you know, um, involved. But here's my point. She takes care of them. And it's the same thing. This blessing of the new birth. Peter says, grow in the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Keep growing. Keep developing. Don't become stagnant. Don't, don't become distracted. 
but grow and nurture your faith. Be with God's people. Be in the house of God. Be in the presence of God, in the word of God. I leave you with a quote from Tony Evans, wonderful pastor from Texas. Why then do we still sin in thought, word, and deed, even though we prefer not to? Why do we do the things that we just don't, we don't want to do anymore, but we find ourselves doing them? He goes on to say, the new life of Christ is planted in us in seed form, but we still bear the damage of sin in our souls. When Christ returns, the flesh will be completely eradicated and we will be without sin. Until then, we must continually repent of sin, submit to God's word, walk with the spirit so that the seed of the new divine nature may grow and flourish in our lives. So there is a sense, of course, in which the seed of God is God's work and God's going to grow it. But we have a corresponding responsibility and a constant invitation to walk closer with the Lord, to to serve him, to know him better and to grow spiritually. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Take a moment. The two questions I have for you, one is addressed to one group of people and one is the other, and one to the other. Have you been born again? I'm not asking, are you in church or do you go to church or are you a part of a wanna or the youth group or, or do you give money to the poor, any of those things. I'm not asking you those questions. Are you born again? Have you put your faith personally in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? That is not something that your parents or your friends can do for you. It's something that we do individually. We personally respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. We, under conviction of our sin and our need for a Savior, Turn to him and to him alone as our Savior and Lord. The Bible says today is the day of your salvation. If you you are within the sound of my voice, no matter when you hear it, are you born again? Have you put your faith in Christ? For those who know Christ, This beautiful gift, the life of God in you. Are you nurturing it? Are you growing? Are you growing in the knowledge and in the grace of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Keep going. I pray perhaps in your discouragement that you keep going. Unanswered questions, hurt, keep going. You think you've failed too many times? Keep going. The blood of Christ covers it all. Christ is the one who is perfect and he stood in your place. God is completely satisfied, completely. Evgeny read about the holiness of God in the beginning of the service for a reason. 
oftentimes we get distracted from the beauty and the truth of the gospel because we actually think it's up to us. And we begin to doubt God's love for us, his grace for us, his, his acceptance of us. Keep going. Keep walking with the Lord. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your mercy, for your kindness, for your grace. Thank you for your very presence in our lives. We don't have to physically go to a place to be near you. Of course, you are everywhere. But you've taken up residence in our own lives. Help us to develop that fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Knowing you. Being encouraged and supported by you. Oh, Father, I pray that you would fill us with hope and joy as we remember who, you, who we are in Christ. We give you thanks and praise. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.